Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marts and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is episode number 73, and for the 73rd time, I am your host, well, I guess technically for the 72nd time I'm your host, since uh, for episode 70, Chanel was my my guest host, but it is my 73rd appearance on the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour, which is, um, I you know, it's sort of ironic, given that my name is in the title and I've been on the show 73 times, so uh, I'm happy to keep the streak moving. Now, once upon a time, Back in the summer of 2011, I published my debut novel, Inside the Outside. And especially if, if you've never published a novel, then you're, then, then you're likely not entirely aware of the, 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 the overwhelming anxiety that comes with publishing a first novel. And, you know, it might be a little bit different for every author, but for me... Uh, a you know a, a very very large part of the anxiety that that I was feeling when I published my first novel was that nobody was going to like it, let alone read it. I mean that's its own anxiety. I think with any author is is anybody going to read this book? And so of course I felt that. But beyond that, is anybody can even like this book? And then of course there's the anxiety beyond that: is what if people read it and they fucking hate it? So there's all sorts of anxieties that go along with publishing a first novel, and I was feeling all of these things. So not too long after I published Inside the Outside, I got an email from a beekeeper in Idaho who had read my book, and she loved it, and she had some terribly nice things to say about it. So, I, you know, it, it probably goes without saying, but because this is a podcast, it would be silly not to say them. So I was, I was just, well, I, I don't know. I was almost relieved. I, I, I don't think that's the right word, but for the sake of, of me not being able to fish out the right word at this, just this moment, I was just so completely relieved to go along with overjoy to hear that, you know, a complete stranger had read my book and enjoyed it. And she was a beekeeper, which was also cool too. So, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, of this I am certain, I am certain that the beekeeper in Idaho was wholly unaware that I was drowning in anxiety and self-doubt, and she was probably equally unaware of how profoundly uplifting it was to read, uh, to read her message about my book. It was wonderful. And so uh, I, I wrote her back, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm sure, hopefully, I was... I, I, if I didn't at least say thank you, then I'm the asshole. I'm pretty sure at the very least I said thank you. Um, but you know, whatever I said, uh, you know, the you know the the, the beekeeper and I, uh, we we wrote back and forth uh, over the years, and 
you know, in a, in a relatively short amount of time, we became very good friends, you know, or, or at the very least, as good a friend as you can become via the, the internet. So, so we became very good friends despite having never actually met in person. And we never did meet in person until episode 73 of the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. And for anybody keeping score, that's literally the episode you're listening to right now. And so it turns out that the beekeeper is also a stand-up comedian named Emma Arnold. And she also just happens to be my guest on this week's podcast. So Emma, being a stand-up comedian, regularly tours the country doing her stand-up comedy. And so a few months back, she had a couple of shows in Los Angeles. Now, even before I knew that she was going to be in Los Angeles, I'd been wanting to have Emma on the podcast. And I told her, you know, more than once that I wanted to have her on the show. And so it was, it was something that we knew that we would do eventually. And so since she was going to be in Los Angeles, uh, which is you know, uh, not far at all from, you know, from, from where I live, especially considering that she's coming from Idaho. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was way easier for me to meet her in Los Angeles than it would be for me to meet her in Idaho. So since she was going to be on Los Angeles, it created the perfect opportunity both for Emma and I to officially meet in person, but also to do a little podcasting while we were at it. So we rendezvoused at my brother Greg's apartment, and uh, Greg agreed generously to play the dual role, <laughs> the dual roles, dual roles. I'm going to get it right. Greg agreed to play the dual roles of both my brother, but also producer of the podcast, which was extremely helpful. So, uh, so Emma and I, we officially met and it was, and, and it was so great meet, it was so great meeting her in person because for, you know, from the from the second I saw her and we said hello and we officially kind of greeted each other, it didn't feel like we were meeting for the first time. It just felt like I was getting reacquainted with a really, with a really great old friend, which we are. We are friends, um, but it, it really didn't feel like we were meeting for the first time, even though we were meeting uh, uh, for the first time. And so, so we 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 chatted for a couple of minutes, got acquainted. Greg set up the the microphones and. Uh, and got prepared to to record our podcast, and then you know, then a few minutes later, Emma and I sat down, and uh, and we had just uh, a, a wonderful chat. It was one of the one of the all time great conversations that I've ever had on this podcast, and I couldn't be any more excited to share it with you guys. Now, one thing that I uh, I, I didn't know this when I first became friends friends with Emma, but eventually, um, I would learn that. Uh, we were mutual friends with Will and Trekin. And actually, during the course of our podcast conversation, I don't think I, I don't know that I knew this before, but uh, but Will is actually the, he's actually the guy that told Emma about me in my book, Inside the Outside. Uh, Will, because Will is, he's a, he's, he's all, he's, he's a fellow writer. Uh, he's also the founder and creative director of Exciting Press, which is a, a it's an independent publisher of, um, uh, of books and, and books and short stories and and a lot of other really great stuff. And uh, Will, with Exciting Press, he publishes several talented authors, including Nick Earls and my friend and mentor James Brown, and 
my guest this week, Emma Arnold. So uh, so Will has got some really, really great talent uh, under the Exciting Press banner. And uh, he also uh, happens to have published a few of my short stories. So uh, so if you're a fan of my writing and uh, and you've already read Inside the Outside and you've read... Uh, you read book one of my vampire trilogy, The Vampire, The Hunter, and The Girl, and you find yourself uh, wanting to read some more of my writing and you didn't realize that I had some short stories avail- available courtesy of Exciting Press, well, now you know. And uh, and, and so if you if you want to do that, they're, they're all available on Amazon.com, so you should go there and buy them. Uh, before you do, though, if you decide to go to Amazon.com to buy my short stories... Then uh, first go to the official website of this podcast, which you'll find at martinlestrapsshow.com. Go to the shop page. Click on the Amazon banner when you get there. It's going to take you to Amazon. Uh, and then and then go ahead and, and, and buy the books and buy the short stories and do, and, you know, do any other shopping you were going to do otherwise. But because you went through this website, Amazon in turn kicks a few pennies back our way. And then we get to take those pennies, reinvest them back into the show, and it allows us to make this podcast as good as we can possibly make it, which is what uh, we strive to do week after week after week, including this week with episode 73 with my, with my amazing guest, the, the, the overwhelmingly and endlessly talented comedian slash beekeeper, Emma Arnold. And my my conversation with Emma, it's so wonderful. And it's not just wonderful; it is it's overflowing with wonderfulness, and it is so overflowed with wonderfulness that it couldn't be contained in one episode. So, episode seventy seventy three, it's actually part one of my conversation with Emma Arnold. So, if you are ready for part one of my conversation with Emma Arnold, and I don't know why you wouldn't be, the only reason you wouldn't be just excited out of your boots. I don't know if that's an actual phrase, but but it you know it might it might literally be happening to you right now. But if, if you're not excited out of your boots, then it, it might be because you know you you don't know who Emma Arnold is. And I promise you, after this conversation you are going to be a fan of Emma Arnold. So, if all of that sounds good to you, then let's move on with the show. I was born in Salmon, Idaho, which is a very small town. And um, I was born to two Orthodox hippies, um, like goat milking, teepee-living hippies. And um, my parents split when I was about five, and my mom moved down to Boise and got remarried, um, which is, you know, like a small city. And then my father, um, Salmon only had about, I don't know, 8,000 people, and he was like, I can't take this city living anymore, and moved up to, like, the rural, rural mountains where, like, all our we had no neighbors, and he had a farm up there. So I'd spend... Um, like the school year with my mom in Boise and then summers and holidays with my father up in rural, rural Idaho, like where no one was around and there was nothing to do. And so I had a weird kind of like dual childhood that way mm-hmm. of like normal city life of riding bikes and then going in the summer, castrating pigs, being real lonely. <laughs> so, 
Uh, did you have a preference between the rural oh, and the... Oh, uh... yeah. I despised going to my father's house. Like, I hated it there. It was so boring and so quiet. And all I did was read and babysit my younger brothers. And I just, I hated it. And it was, you know, when you leave for the summer, you you lose all your friends. So all my friends would hang out during the summer. And then I'd come back and it was like starting a new school all the time because people would be like, oh, right. I think that detail Ew. went right past me. So you stayed for, during the summers. Yeah. So I stayed with him during the summers. Um, up in up in nowhere's land, <laughs> and then I would come back for the school year, and nobody would remember me, and everybody, you know, because like three months is like an eternity to children. So, so yeah, it was kind of an interesting. It sounds like a scary movie. It sounds like <laughs> like like a Friday the Thirteenth out in the woods, nothing going on. Mm-hmm. Did like you watch I, scary movies up there? No, in fact, I didn't actually see my first scary movie until I was about thirteen. Like I wasn't allowed to watch television for the most part. Like I was allowed to watch a little bit of PBS, huh. like Bob Ross. And and so, so you weren't allowed to watch TV. I got it. Yeah, pretty much nothing. Yeah, PBF doesn't count. But and I so I didn't see a lot of stuff until I was older. Um, and so I had like no frame of cultural reference at all. So like my friends would be like Full House and you know talking about <laughs> Alf and stuff, and I didn't know who Han Solo was. Like I didn't see Star Wars till I was a lot older. So and like at my dad's house, we were a little bit more free reign. Like I would watch TV and play video games there. So it was like in the summer, it was like a kind of a trade-off. Like I was allowed to have media there, but it was terrible. And at my mom's house, <laughs> that's where my friends were. But we lived in like this ridiculous Spartan hippie house. So, what? Uh, how old were you when you watched Star Wars? Um, I was a teenager. I was probably sixteen. All right. And you know, I've always felt a little ripped off by that. Now I watched Star Trek because my father was a huge Star Trek fan. Uh-huh. So we watched um, Next Generation, and I was obsessed with that as a kid. Um, or a teenager, I guess. But um, Star Wars, I feel like I kind of missed out on it because I saw it older. I was kind of oh, like, oh, sure. Ah, okay, cool. Sure. And people were like, no, 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 this is amazing. <laughs> and I feel like if you don't see it as a kid, some of the magic of that is lost. Like I was like, I fell asleep during Empire Strikes Back and my boyfriend, you know, my teenage boyfriend at the time was like furious with me. Like, I thought you meant your current boyfriend. No. He really holds he a would also He would also probably be furious to All hear right. that. But yeah, like I... I just was kind of like, oh, yeah, I get it. And I was a big sci-fi fan, yeah. but it wasn't like my favorite sci-fi. I was, I'm more of a Trekkie, I guess, at heart anyway. I guess that's fair. Did you uh, – what do you think about the the prequels, the ones that came out like 20-some-odd years later? Um, I didn't like any of them. And right. I think I fell asleep during all of those two like in the theater because like, um, my – Me too. Yeah, they were just yeah. really long and, and exposition-y. And I was like, these seem really bad, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a good enough expert on it, but I thought they were terrible. No, no, no. They were, they were pretty boring. I, I fell asleep. Well, let me see. I watched the first one, then I took my nephew to see it. That one I fell asleep the second time I saw it. This, I saw the second one. I don't remember if I fell asleep or not. The third one, I definitely fell asleep. But it was like it was like a midnight show. Um and I partly, and partly, I was just too tired. I should have. I was way too tired to watch it. But I tried to watch it. Fell asleep during that one. I just kind of, sort of felt like George Lucas didn't. Uh, either he got really lucky with the with the original trilogy, which mm-hmm. I love. So mm-hmm. you know, go to hell. I love it. <laughs> um, so either he got really lucky with that, or whatever he did right, he forgot what he did right, or he did something really right, but he had no idea what he did right, which mm-hmm. happens sometimes yeah. artistically. Because um, you watch those and whatever magical stuff happened in those first three didn't happen with the, the new ones. No. Although I was reading an article recently and, uh, oh, I forget what it was. But they, it, they were, it was an article about J.J. Abrams who's making the new Star Wars uh, mm-hmm. thing. And and uh, in the article he was talking, J.J. Abrams was specifically talking about bringing in practical effects as opposed to the CGI special effects. 
the idea being that if you put actors in real sort of concrete environments, that their performances are going to be better for the audience. It feels more real and then ultimately create something more real. And they specifically cited the original Star Wars trilogy, which was practical effects, mm-hmm. and the new ones, which was basically everything was shot on a green screen. And that maybe possibly, whether it was just the performances or something else, that maybe part of where something was lost. That and Jar Jar Binks, I suppose. Yeah. No, I agree with that because I feel like CGI, a lot of times there's, you need like, I want investment. Like I want world building. I want to see mm-hmm. like a concrete sets behind things. And um, I, I was watching this. Do you guys remember the, I think it was the second Mummy movie and Dwayne The Rock Johnson is the Scorpion King. And at the end they come out and it was like kind of the earliest days of CGI. And he comes out and they've like made him into this monster Scorpion King. And yeah. I was like, well, we've come a long way. <laughs> we've done a lot of improving. So I think it's definitely gotten better, but yeah. I still feel like you do need like that concrete world building. Yeah. I, I prefer I, it. I, I much, much, much prefer it. I, I think, let me think. There was um the new, uh, oh, what's his face? Zack Snyder. So he did a Man of Steel. He's doing the new Superman, Batman thing. Which, by the way, how do you feel about that, by the way, Batman? This new sort of, I don't know, revolution of us superhero movies. Are you into the superhero movies? Yeah, I'd say, you know, I have have sons. And so, of course, I go see everything. Um, And I like him. I'm not a Superman fan. Like, I've never, he's Mm -hmm. just, he's kind of, he's too perfect, you know? Like, he's a little tiring for me. Like, oh, great, Superman's going to do. But um, I like Batman a lot. Yeah. And I, I liked The Dark Knight. Like, I liked a lot, like, what they're doing with all that. So yeah, I liked those. I know I know that's a heated topic. Like, people get <laughs> – they're either, like, very one side or the other with the new Batmans. But I like them. I think they seem great. Oh, I love them. So Zack Snyder, who's doing the – so he, so he's in charge of the Superman franchise. He's going to be doing – he's doing – well, um, I, it, it might even be done at this point, the new Superman versus Batman, which, by the way, I don't know exactly when it comes out. But they may as well take my money today. Like, uh, <laughs> three tickets off the bat. I don't even care. I, you know, I was going to say love it or hate it. There's no way I'm going to hate it. I'm going to watch it minimum three times. The Avengers comes out May 1st. As we sit here, I, I, I'm fucking giddy. I can't <laughs> wait. So, um, but anyway, my only reservation, and it's a tiny one, Zack Snyder uses a lot of, I guess, CGI, a lot of greens. Like, you can tell that there's actors and what's behind them isn't real and it looks cool ish but you can tell it's not real i never saw 300 but he that was one of his mm, movies okay. too and even just seeing like the previews for that i can kind of i can kind of see that um this is like a million miles away from where i, I suspected this conversation would go <laughs> but it's fine so far uh as far as scary movies go only because you lived in when you say you lived in a rural area i imagine you're like alone in a cabin in the woods i have no idea if that's exactly what it um was. yeah pretty pretty close um the, so my they we lived in a trailer in the woods actually while my um father and his wife were building a cabin and it took they did it themselves so it took a long time um but i because i was the only girl up there um, I actually lived in a sheep camp, kind of removed from the house. Do you know what a sheep camp is? It's kind of like a covered wagon a little bit. Um, so removed from the house, I lived, you know, I don't know. I don't know exactly how far, but a little ways. And I um, I didn't watch a lot of scary movies, but I started reading um, Stephen King books when I was like nine. Oh, okay. So, and I was kind of obsessed with the horror genre in, in general. And so I was terrified to go and like, I would have to walk in like the complete, it's terrifying dark 
you know, like this thousand feet or whatever from from my house to my my little trailer where I stayed. And every night it was just terrifying. And a lot of times I would lay in bed and like, you know, it's out in the wilderness. So there's a lot of noises and creaking and stuff. And I would just lay there and be like heart poundingly terrified. And I, and like I read it, you know, just out in the middle of nowhere by myself in a little trailer. How old were you when you read it? That's a goddamn long book. Yeah. I, well, I, I probably, because I wasn't allowed to watch TV, I spent a lot of time reading and I read it when I was probably like 11. Okay. It's like a thousand pages. But I read, um, what's the one with the sparrows? Uh, can you give me more than that? Um, the I dark might, half. The dark half. Uh, I read the dark half. I could not have helped. But no. I'm glad you found it. <laughs> I read the dark half when I was probably like nine. Uh, what happened was, um, because we weren't allowed to watch TV, but nobody really paid attention to what I was um, reading. And one day I bought like a huge box of books uh-huh. at a yard sale for like a dollar. And it was all romance novels and horror novels. <laughs> and then I just got like obsessed with horror novels. Like I basically just read like everything I could find by Stephen King and James Patterson and whoever, Clive Barker. So I got a really early introdu- like weird introduction to sex and violence and all yeah. these other things. Like Jaws, I read Jaws when I was 10, which is very sexual. It's a very sexy book, actually, for a shark book. Yeah, I recently read that. Well, I say recent. At this point, I don't know. Maybe it's been a year, but but pretty recently, because the book itself came out thirty some odd years ago. So by that, so so sort of recently. And I remember I told you, I think, at some point, I I, I mentioned I was reading Jaws, and that's that's the, I think that was the first thing you told me is that you read it when you were ten. Yeah. And it uh, and I think you were sort of because I had just started it, so you were sort of giving me a. Yeah, once I get to to the crazy sexual stuff, like imagine like a ten year old Emma, just like picture, up in the just woods. a picture, a ten year old girl sitting, you know, over by herself with like very wide eyes, reading through the part <laughs> where the woman's not wearing panties and she's wondering if Hooper will crash the car and she'll be found and without underwear <laughs> and like, and she's picturing him having sex with her and um, just picture a ten year old girl sitting there and you know her mother walking by and being like, "What you reading?" and she's like, "Shark book." Just a shark book, nothing. It's just a science shark book, and <laughs> carry on. Because <laughs> Hooper, who plays him in the movie, the um, Greg, Richard Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus, yeah. So in the book, Hooper's a fucking stud. I know. Yeah, he's a heartthrob. Yeah, he's like super sexy and getting tons of poon and yeah. yeah they, there, I mean, you know, there was movement in my pants when I was reading it a couple months ago. <laughs> but he's not at all. Right, he's not at, like when like I imagine. Since you weren't watching a lot of TV and stuff, did you read the book before you saw the movie? Oh, well before. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. when you watched the movie, did you have – were you like, I can't wait to see fucking Hooper? Who was it? Brad Pitt? Harrison I, Ford? I, I Dick, think – Dick Tracy? That's not that's not natural. Nope. That's not a sexy – nope. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Tracy. You know my I was, type. I think I was going Spencer I like a Tracy. fictional detective is what I'm attracted to. <laughs> I always knew that about you. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think so. I think that movie scared me so bad. Mm-hmm. The book, I think, creeped me out, but it was it wasn't as scary. Like the movie really destroyed me for water oh, for yeah. most of my life. Pretty much everybody, I think, too. Yeah. So yeah, no, the movie moved me. It was uh, to, to this day, I, especially when I was a kid, but even now, like when I was a kid, like in second grade, my parents built a swimming pool, and I watched them build it, so I know there was no sharks in there. <laughs> And I, I could I could stare at it, and I, it was a it was my dad cleaned it, so the water was clear. I could see everything in there, and I'd get in the pool, 
the second I closed my eyes, mm-hmm. if, I, if you know, you're floating, you close your eyes, it's fucking terror. I was like waiting for something to come up and get me. I yeah. knew there was no shark and it's completely the fault of Jaws. Yeah. Oh, I had the same thing. And, and I saw it a little older, but I would be swimming and be like in the deep end and then just be like consumed with panic. Like, ah, get to the edge, get to the edge in a swimming pool. So did you see, uh, have you seen all the Jaws movies by any chance? I have now. Yeah, I've seen them all. Uh, let me think. Which one's your favorite? Do you have a favorite? Probably, I think the first one. Can you tell it I didn't really... have a question? I just want to talk about Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first one really stuck with me. Yeah. Like it just really, uh, it bothered me for years and years, you know? So, and I didn't swim in lakes or rivers. Like there was a long time. So, yeah, the second Jaws movie. Uh, nobody wanted to, like none, none of the original cast wanted to make it. Steven Spielberg obviously didn't make it. Nobody wanted to make it, but Roy Shire was in it because he's the only one who apparently, whether it was him or his agent or whatever, uh, in his contract said that he had to make a sequel if they did it. But nobody else oh, did that. Man. So I so they literally that. dragged him onto it. You know, you know, at gunpoint, he had to make the second Jaws movie. He, he never did another one after that because he was done. The third one it was when they did in 3D and it was at SeaWorld. That was oh, kind yeah. of terrifying because it was seen when I was a kid. And yeah, I don't. I remember thinking that it was very. I saw that as an adult. Sure. And so I just thought it was kind of silly. There was but. a scene in there where I, I don't know if this is a real. Uh, they might have just made it for the movie. I have no idea. But it was Sea World, and you could walk through like a tunnel. But in the tunnel, you were surrounded by the ocean, so you could see the sea life. And then, so there was a scene in there where you see Jaws. Well, uh, Jaws, whatever. It's the shark, but Jaws, and Jaws is coming up. And then uh, hits his nose against the window, or mm. her, I don't know. Uh, and then hits his nose against the window a couple of times, and it finally breaks, and it fills with water, and then there's the people in there, and then the water. I can still see it now. I know the movie's not good, but just the idea yeah. of that scene still scares me, yeah. just thinking about it. That is pretty creepy. Jaws 4, Jaws the Revenge. You see that one? Um, I don't know, it's actually. Maybe I didn't see that one. The Maybe title, I haven't seen all the of them. The title itself, right? Jaws the Revenge. Yeah. Jaws is coming for revenge. Now here's the thing, you've seen the first one. Sharks are really vengeful. They killed not... the shark. Yeah. <laughs> so the shark is dead, but three movies later the shark wants revenge. So the idea is that somehow that shark had baby sharks, maybe. Yeah. And that there were stories passed along. <laughs> like, did you hear what they did to mom in the first These movie? Super sentient. They they put the, the the oxygen tank and then Roy Shire shot her. And then the asshole came back for the second movie. Nobody else came back. Four movies, and not, and not only that, it was in like Jamaica or something. So they traveled, went to Jamaica specifically for Roy Shire's wife, because she went to Jamaica with their kids. The shark found him to get revenge on the family who they'd killed Jeez. three movies earlier. Michael Caine was in that movie. Oh, here's a little anecdote for you. He won an Academy Award, but he wasn't there to accept the award because he was making Jaws for the revenge. <laughs> and he was like, "Great, great." <laughs> So, uh, so somebody, I don't know if he sent up, uh, uh, did a Marlon Brando and sent up like a Native American to... To accept it. Yeah, and then make everybody feel bad about whatever. I, f- I forget what she did. Do you remember that one by any chance? No. When he won for The Godfather, he wasn't there and he set up a Native American basically to give a, a social speech about, you know, whatever. You should look it up. In fact, anybody listening right now, look that up. Go ahead and pause our talk for a moment. Pause look it. it. Mm-hmm. You'll be glad you did it. I... I actually haven't seen the Godfather movies either, which oh, really? is like infuriating to people. A lot of times I'll be like, no, I read the books. It doesn't infuriate, but you should. Not as a kid. I read, is there more that I read? I mean, I read the Godfather. Yeah, I, I guess maybe, I guess I read the book. But it's a but lot. I, I mean, yeah, I think it was a thick. Yeah. And even the book know. itself, it says like book one, book two, like within that book. Mm-hmm. 
Like, you know, I read that while I was writing Inside the Outside. Oh. And it was actually extremely helpful when I was writing the book because uh, I was, um, it was, let me, what was I doing? I was trying to figure out how to, how to write the, like, Daddy Marlowe's backstory but I didn't want to get too far away from Timber's story. Mm-hmm. But he was important, and I had all this stuff in my head, and so I wasn't sure how do I incorporate that, but in a in a in a nice in a seamless enough way where it doesn't ever feel like I'm getting too far away from Timber. And so while I was trying to work out that puzzle, I was reading The Godfather, and there was a section that talks about. Um, uh, oh well, it's the section with the with Vito Corleone when he was a kid. Think I think I'm getting this right when he's like a kid and and uh, Italy Corleone Italy or whatever and then uh, eventually you know you see him as a kid and as a teenager and the, the stuff he did there and then eventually in, in New York and it was like this huge sweeping backstory but it was what whatever whatever Mario Puzo did I don't remember anymore but whatever he did like a light bulb went off it's like oh fuck that makes sense I can do that so uh, if he were alive and he enjoyed podcasts I would give him credit for that <laughs> but I don't. Uh, I like to believe he would like podcasts if he were alive, but only be. Did you know that Mario Puzo wrote the first Superman movie? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. See, see, I, that's a, that's a callback. That's what that's, that's <laughs> podcast talk. I'm not trying to intimidate you. Callback, uh, yeah. No, I haven't ever heard that term. <laughs> as a comedian, that's, we, don't, uh, we don't use yeah. those at all. As far as a uh, you know, because pod, podcasts, it's only podcast. They've been around for like six or seven months. It's yeah. a very new. It's, it's a very pretty, new medium. It's pretty fresh. What you're so, doing here. So pretty the terminology, fresh. like callbacks, is yeah. also very mm-hmm. new. Something else you might we haven't hit one yet, but at some point, mm-hmm. when uh, like let's say for instance, I set something up. Well, actually, we would call it a setup. Let's say I set something up, and then I then I then I punctuate it with something very funny. We call it a punchline. Oh, again, okay. I, I'm not. Mm. Well, I'm not. I, I'm only. I, I don't. I don't want you to feel intimidated. That's no. the reason that I'm bringing this. Thank stuff you. Up. Thank you for you know letting me know how you want to do this. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's see here. So as far as your, uh, let me think. Well, really quickly, do you want us to? Just keep going. You're in a positive. Uh, we can keep going. It's completely. So your mom's here, you guys. Let's keep your it going. Mom's we'll keep, here, we'll you guys. keep it going. We'll keep it going. Does uh, she want to be on the podcast? Bring her in. I'm, I'll bring her on the podcast. My mom's. My mom is here. I want to meet your mom. Actually, you're going to meet her. She's literally behind the door. Wonderful. Hi. Hi I'm Emma. Nice Hi, to meet Emma. you. I've heard so many nice, things, heard about so many nice things about you too. Thank you. Hello. Hi, Billy. Is that a handshake? Handshake. <laughs> I was coming in for I was coming for a hug. Oh well yeah. When you, when you, when you yeah. Say, we're recording. Say hi. Hi. I got um on the freeway and got stuck and got lost. And <laughs> I got stuck on the five. How about you? Same here. Yeah. And then Greg tells me, um, I'm recording, I can't talk. I needed to know how to get here. <laughs> <laughs> well then he was he was following orders. Mm-hmm. Specifically if you got lost, I told him don't help her out. That was the order. My way. All right. Okay. She's here for the intervention too. <laughs> that you guys are having for me. So, uh, so you grew up as, as a reader. Eventually, mm-hmm. you well, you do a few things. So you're a comedian. You are mm-hmm. uh, you're a writer. Um, I'm a hand model. You're a hand model for you, a candle company. So. Oh, I saw that. You you posted the commercial that I watched, right? Yeah, yeah. I do regular modeling, but I also am a hand model for them. So. Not, I'm not a model for anywhere else, just specifically one candle company. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that they specifically say just the hands and you're like, I can do more. 
that has happened before where they're like, okay, let's bring in somebody for this front shot here. And I'm like, well, I'm standing here and we just need your hands. Thank you. <laughs> you also, I'm, I don't know what the term is, but you farm bees. You still yeah, do that? Maybe keeper. Yep. Beekeeper. I mm-hmm. guess there is a term for it. Yep. Far, a bee farmer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm actually not a bee farmer. I like I'm a bee bees. farmer better. You have to have a certain number of bees to be a bee farmer. I'm, how, I'm a hobbyist. How do you beekeeper. milk a bee without killing it? You do not milk bees. Well, now you're just talking negative. I think you can. You could. I mean, you could. I you suppose. just need to go with the right you're not, attitude. You're going to kill it, though, if you do. Oh. Going to for sure kill it. But again, I think you're just going into it with the wrong attitude. I think if you were just more optimistic, you wouldn't kill the bee. That's Well, you know, so I guess. Honey's got to come from somewhere. Honey's got to come from somewhere. So you can milk a, a bee. A lot of bee milking. It's a, it's a pretty fun hobby. All right. Bee so milking. as far as, so, um, I'm just trying to decide where to go next because we've already gone a million miles away from where I thought we were going to go. Uh as far as the, uh, <laughs> well, it, it, um, my producer, he's curious as to why we've gone a million miles away from where I thought we were going to go. Um, I would say, I would say primarily it's because, uh, well, this is our first time meeting in person. We've known yes, each other for yeah. several years. Yeah. And so it's, I, it feels weird to me that, that we <laughs> just now are meeting. <laughs> like even, uh, even yesterday, Greg and I had coffee, your producer, why be <laughs> So, so my producer also wants to, he, he was clarifying. I thought the producer wanted to know why we were going off topic. He wanted to know why. Oh. He wanted to know why, why bee farming. He wasn't specific. Oh, okay. Um, I, so I started beekeeping. Um, so I'm a third generation. So my dad, my dad is a beekeeper. My stepdad, who is my dad, like raised me, um, is a beekeeper. And then his dad was a beekeeper. They lived in Sacramento and it's super easy to keep bees in Sacramento. It's like cheating. Um, <laughs> not so much in Idaho. It's a lot more work. But um, yeah, so it was just kind of something like I knew that my dad had done and he didn't, he didn't do while we were growing up. And I wanted to get, get into it. I was always really obsessed with bugs as a kid. Like I owned a microscope as a teenager and was always like collecting bugs and looking at bugs. That's pretty cool. I know that you're probably like, yeah, there's yeah. a name there, there. There's a name for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> yep. That's me. So I was like, and in fact, I, when I started out in college, I was planning to be a biologist and I was, you know, I was into the, into mm. bugs. So, and bees are like the most interesting little weird creatures on the planet. They do a million like bizarre, weird things. Are you writing nerd on that and then showing it to Martin? Oh, <laughs> I thought well, you were going to be like nerd. Yeah. Well, I was gonna, I mean, because you loved to read, you didn't watch TV, you liked bugs, you had a telescope, you were going to study biology. Yeah. I don't think I even had to say nerd out loud. No, you didn't. People were like, we're on board. I think the listeners are doing the math. I had had, um, severe cystic acne, too. So, like, yeah, yeah, no, it was all. I played Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. I was like... Yeah. The complete nerd. Yeah, so. uh, an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. Of oh, <laughs> totally. <laughs> exactly. So. Uh, so at some point, okay. So uh, so you were a big reader as a kid. At some point, you became a, a terrifically talented writer. But Thank when did you. you? When did you? At what point did you realize that you enjoyed writing, or that it might be something that you would sort of do regularly? Well, um, growing up, I wrote a lot and wrote um, sketches and. Um, film, like, you know, mini movies and plays and all, and monologues and stuff. But it never really occurred to me that that was what I wanted to do. Um, in fact, in the fourth grade, I performed, um, I ran for vice president for the school for class, you know, class vice president. And you had to perform a sketch in front of all the other kids. And I wrote a sketch called bimbos from outer space that nearly (laughs) got me suspended. So, (laughs) 
at, at the risk of a, of a spoiler, did you lose the election? Oh, so hard. Because that would be so hard. Because that, I mean, in terms of the uh, in terms of the the trajectory of your nerddom, yeah. that would make sense. Well, and I feel like I was a nerd who didn't know I was a nerd. Like I was like, oh my god, these guys are gonna love this play I wrote, and then kids would be like, what is wrong with you? And the teachers were like, you can't perform that like you know is I didn't know that I was gonna lose but yeah I think I got like two votes and it was like me and my friend who was like yeah I thought it was a great play you know so yeah so yeah I always wrote um and then I I didn't write for a while you know I I had kids re I got married and had kids very very young and so I was busy How but actually um I got married when I was 21 and I had my first baby when I was 22 okay and then I just was like boom 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 let's have a bunch of babies um but I actually, what started me writing again was MySpace. I was like, a, I was a MySpace blogger, like back when that was like a thing, and you know, like people were getting big on MySpace. Yeah, I like, started to have like, like a MySpace following. Atari. They were big about the same time, I think. Right? Yeah, it was, it was like that weird wave. I don't know. I started blogging and was like, oh, this is really fun. I really like this. And then I, you know, started my own blog and um, started writing books and graphic novels, and everything was garbage that I wrote for a very long time and started yeah. to get better. So, yeah. Well, that's par for the course in terms of mm-hmm. the writing not being good. I think that goes for any, any writer who eventually gets good would be, if they're honest with themselves, like you are, they, they you know, the, the beginning stuff is pretty much shit. Yeah. People always say to me, um, cause I wrote a graphic novel and then two novels and they were so bad, like embarrassingly bad. Did you bad. do the artwork in the graphic novel? No, okay. uh-uh, I didn't. I just, I just wrote the script for it basically. And and people will be like, oh God, they were terrible. And they're like, don't say that. And I'm like, no, it's okay to to do something and then look back on it and be like, that was a practice one. <laughs> you know, like I don't feel bad. The graphic novel was about um, Romani gypsies during World War II that were being turned into werewolves by the Nazis. <laughs> mm, yeah, don't try to steal that. That's a really good premise. And um, the first book I wrote was uh, about cave dwelling vampires. Huh? Hey, huh? I know a vampire novelist that um, that like free formed that, but they were like free formed, not actual vampires, like more like I don't know, ephemeral vampires. Um, and the main character a character was making sex dolls to house the ephemeral <laughs> vampires. It's also a very bad book. And then the third book was about. Um, uh, inter interplanetary necromancers. All right. Yeah. So, and then I had someone very, very dear to me, sit, like, kind of sit me down and be like, "Listen, love you, but maybe world building isn't your thing. Maybe you should write nonfiction." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, hmm, "No, you're probably right." And so I started writing nonfiction after that, to much more success. Yeah. I was wanted like because the books I loved were fantasy and sci-fi, and that's what I wanted to write. But I'm not good at it. What was the uh, what was the word count on these books? I'm curious. Um, the graphic novel was shorter. Obviously, yeah. I don't. I'm not sure on that one. Um, the the first one, the vampire one, was probably a ninety thousand. Wow, it was a long. It's a hefty book. It was a hefty book, and then the necromancer one only ended up being like sixty thousand. Okay, so and that was supposed like to a, be a young adult. But yeah. then when I turned it into Will. Um, from Exciting Press and like showed it to him. He was like, there's a lot of sex in this. And I was like, yeah, that kind of got away from me, actually. I don't know what happened. So, so yeah, I, I didn't end up. Yeah. And did you tell him, have you read Jaws? Yeah. I was like, actually, this is a great way to move plot along. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was like, how come there's a character named Hooper in your book? I, yeah. And there's a shark? No, no. A necromancer shark. It's fine. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, so so uh, so you would. I don't think. Honestly, I don't even think I. Well, I knew you did some fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I realized that you were doing the the sort of sci-fi fantasy world building, as you called it, fiction. Have you given up on that completely? Completely, yeah, completely. Like, um, I it's it's what I would like wanted to do, but I I feel okay in just being like this is a little beyond my skill set. Like, mm-hmm. I'm I can write funny, and I can write like. I can write narrative nonfiction stuff fairly easily, but fiction tears my soul apart. Like to sit down and write it and create a whole world like is so difficult for me that I'm like, I just in the end was like, maybe this isn't what I was meant to do. Like I still feel like I have a really good fiction book in me someday when mm-hmm. I'm my kids are all out of the house. I'm going to totally rewrite that necromancer book, man, and it's going to be amazing. But in the end, you know, I part of it was is like I needed to make a living, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like. I could write these fiction books and they could be bad for the next 15 years. You know, I could just always be bad at this, but I already know I'm good at this comedy writing stuff. So I just kind of switched over. Yeah. And like, I, I think I first, well, I, I, we, I mean, I was gonna say we met, we've known each other on the internet, I guess. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I, we sort of crossed paths before I discovered uh, I just discovered your website but I discovered it because we crossed paths but your website that was the first place I saw your writing uh and I'm sh- I'm sure I've told you this on email or something but the writing's out it, it's outstanding oh, thank and you. it makes perfectly good sense that you would sort of find a, a a comfort level with that um and I know that you were working on a memoir was that fair yeah um it's not really i, I don't know if i never yeah, sounds sure so heavy it, yeah. but i am writing a narrative nonfiction book um called notion sickness um which is like about my real life and real experiences um notion sickness it was what my father like if you said any anything that you had a like a complaint about you know like oh my knee hurts that that was notion sickness your knee's fine that's notion sickness or like if you're like oh i feel kind of nauseous notion sickness so to me it just kind of embodies this idea that like especially I think with women like you're kind of not supposed to complain about things and you're supposed to just kind of go with the flow and kind of be okay with everything and I was raised um my family is Swedish like they're upper peninsula Michigan Swedes and like you're never supposed to complain or like have you know you know be like oh it's too cold in this room like you just live with the cold and you you be very polite about it you know so I don't know I feel like it encompasses a lot of my my personality and my struggle of like oh no that's fine that's fine and having to like learn to comedy for me has been a great way to like learn to speak up for myself and actually be assertive which Mm -hmm. goes very against my nature so yeah that's what the book is about is it uh would you say sort of a collection of essays or does uh kind of i would say it's a collection of stories um because i do um i started before i started stand-up comedy i did storytelling and so it's a kind of a collection of a lot of those stories it does kind of have like an an overall arc maybe chronologically but Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's kind of a collection of, you know, stuff I did when I was a teenager and stuff I did when I was a kid. And so, yeah. That's cool. And now how, uh, well, actually, uh, well, so I know that, uh, when the book is eventually done, exciting press is going to publish it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that I I don't even know at one point I found out that we, we both knew Will and Trekkin. Who's the, uh... Yeah, well, Will, so how I found out about you, and I appreciate you being like, oh, we met on the internet instead of, oh, Emma, you were stalking me. It was a little <laughs> terrifying. And then you started stalking my brother. Um, that was very thoughtful. But You're welcome. Will sent me your book. He sent me Inside the Outside. He was like, I bought this book for you, and he sent me a copy um, 
uh, on the Kindle and I read it and was like immediately and so in love with it. In fact, it's weird. It took me so long to finish. I'm a very quick reader. Like I read things in one or two days usually. And it was so creepy and like <laughs> filled with dread that it took me forever to finish because I would just read some of it and be like, yuck, no, I don't want to know anymore <laughs> about this story. I hate this, but like loved it so much. Um, so then after that, I contacted you and was like super fangirly and like, oh, I love your book. You're so amazing. And you were polite enough to be like, I'll read your stuff too, weirdo. <laughs> and then same thing. I found all Greg's stuff online. I was like, love your movie. Love your website. That's the thing I do. Um, um, a lot of my friends back in Idaho tease me um, that I, I come on very strong, <laughs> which you may have noticed. Um, I have like this overwhelming like Idaho friendliness of like, I, I forget that maybe other people don't go through the world being like, hey, want to be best buds, you know? So I have to kind of like in LA, especially like be cool, be cool, Arnold, be cool. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was just a huge fan of you guys. And luckily you guys were, the feeling was mutual, I hope. That was, that was awfully I was, I didn't want to interrupt you. You were saying so many nice things about me. I was hoping it would, <laughs> would go just a little bit longer. I'm sorry I wasted some of that time on Greg, right? Right. Jeez, That's not, that wasn't necessary. Stupid. I'm, I barely let him produce this show. <laughs> and even then under protest. <laughs> You're doing a great job, by the way, Greg. Um, yeah. So, so, so more about me. So, I wrote <laughs> this book that you loved. Uh, go. Um, no, I. I'm just kidding. Oh, I was like, oh, I, I can do I'm, I'm twenty just minutes on that. Okay. So yeah. So Will, Will was actually he was he was probably he was almost definitely the first really enthusiastic supporter of the book who mm-hmm. I didn't actually know in real life. Like we know each other very well now, but only because of the book. And so when I when I when I put the book out. One of the first things I, I mean, I think I had an idea this was going to happen, but uh, one of the most difficult things about putting out a book, especially a first book, is nobody knew who the fuck I was. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I need, you know, I, how do I make people aware of, of me in this book? So I, you know, I, I just sort of went around the internet and tried to find like blogs and stuff and book blogs and just anybody who would, who it seemed like they might want to read it. And um, I either I got a collection of either no's or like no responses, and every now and again somebody would kind of be like, oh, I don't know, maybe whatever. So I found how did I find Will? Oh, I know how I found Will. I wrote an article for self publishing review called a self publisher's manifesto. Oh yeah, I read that. That was great. And so that thank you. Uh, and so Will saw it, and I don't know if he had. What did he do? I think he just left something in the comment section. And so we ended up chatting in the comment section. Uh, and then I think I ended up emailing him because I figured, okay, he's uh, he's being nice to me. Let me ask this guy. And so I said, hey, uh, and you know, I didn't even ask him to read the book. At that point, I'd start, I had stopped asking people to read the book because I, I was, you know, getting bored hearing no all the time. So uh, so I said, hey, can I do like a, like a, like a, uh, an interview on your website, something like that. And so he's like, yeah, sure. Why not? And then unbeknownst to me, he bought the book and read it. And I, 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 I didn't know he was going to do that. And then he emailed me a few days later, um, this really, really nice email that if I remember correctly, started with dude, exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, and then I was like, Oh fuck. He hated it. That was, that was my immediate dude, thought. Dude, this is the worst. I, actually, I take it back. I didn't know he was reading it. So I didn't even know what he was saying. <laughs> and then like he, Really loved it, and then um, just kind of from that point on was uh, uh, really cool, very much in my corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then down the line, when he started Exciting Press, uh, I, he and I ended up uh, working together a little bit with that. So, um, so, 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 what am I saying? So we have Will and Trekkin in common because he's going to publish your 
your narrative yeah. creative nonfiction yep. memoir. And he's another person like um, he and I have been we met on MySpace. We were MySpace blogger friends. Mm-hmm. And same thing, like I, I've never met him in real life. Um, I have a comedy show in Pittsburgh in June and I'm hoping to meet him then. Oh, cool. So, but yeah, it's, it's like a weird, it's like those, the weird 2000 <laughs> friendships yeah. now. I've kind of grown accustomed to it. Like I forget that there's so many people that I haven't actually met. Yeah. Yeah. I felt that way meeting you guys. I'm like, oh, we're buds. Yeah. Yeah. There was no, it, it was, uh, in fact, I didn't even say hi right away. I was like, I'll get to Emma. Yeah. You didn't. You said <laughs> hi to Greg first and I'm like... I'm yeah. a, I actually flew a very long way, yeah. <laughs> not, I went not got, just for this podcast. But. Got some water. I asked mm-hmm. Greg, do you need anything while I'm here? Uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, we did some of that. And then I eventually got to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, I, so, so I know how you met Will. How did the uh, – how did you – well, here's what I know. I know that you're a great writer, and I know that Will is a good judge of talent. So it makes perfect sense to me that he would want to publish you. But uh, how did that ultimately come about? Well, it's – uh, I, once again, my Idaho over-enthusiasm, um, I had been looking for a publisher for a very long time or an agent more specifically and mm-hmm. had racked up like a hundred rejection letters. And I knew that he had started Exciting Press and then he was publishing some of your stuff and some of Nick Earl's. And so I just wrote him and was like, hey, this might be super tacky. <laughs> and at the time I was writing erotica and self-publishing it. Um, and that was just a way to make money because I had gotten divorced and I was like kind of panicking, like, how am I going to make money? And Will had told me like, you know, I have some good friends who are making really good money doing erotica. So I was like, whatever, I'll do that. Um, so I wrote him and was just like, hey, you know, no pressure, love you. But what would you think about signing me with Exciting Press to, you know, publish some more erotica and publish my book? And he was like... Yeah, I thought you were doing fine on your own. I figured you wouldn't need my help, Laurel, and wouldn't want that. And I was like, oh, no, no, I totally want that. And so at the time when I was self-publishing, I was making my own covers and doing all my own marketing. <laughs> and and people would tell me, like, your your thing was great, but, oh, my God, the cover was so bad because I have no <laughs> eye. Like, I have no artistic eye whatsoever. Um and I'm like, I know, I know that. So I was like, I want you to do the covers. I want you to handle all the stuff I'm bad at and so I can just write. Um, and then after doing the erotica for a while, I realized that like I hated it. Like hated, hated, hated What'd doing it. What you hate it. about it? Because you were good at it. Yeah, it's, um, I think. Because I read a lot of your stories. Yeah. It made me blush. I was, I was very good at it. Um, I, honestly, it was like, you know, you only have so much creative juice. You only have so much creative energy. And I was thinking like, oh, I can write erotica and then, but then work on like my actual projects. But it took so much effort to write the crap that I had to make money with that at the end of the day, I didn't write anything. And I Mm. just hated writing it. Like it just, I thought like, oh, this will be such a good outlet, you know, for, you know, for me. But it was like, in the end, it was just, I just hated doing it. It just was Mm. uncomfortable. And, and I, um, I ended up being kind of public with my pen name and I was because I was like, well, I'm not ashamed of it. This is good writing. Actually, a friend of mine knew I was writing erotica and we were at a party and he was like, what's your pen name? And I was like, oh, I don't want to tell people. And he was like, do you want to sell books? Because you should totally tell people like 40 people here want to buy your book right now. Tell people your (laughs) pen name. And I so I told him right there at the party and then he read what he bought it on his phone and then read (laughs) at this party, read one of my stories out loud and out loud. And I was dying and I was just so it's kind of this like trial by fire like after that I was like well whatever so I gave people my pen name and then when I got into comedy and started becoming a little well known I was like uh 
I don't actually want these things connected because a lot of times people would read my erotica and then approach me and they would feel like we had already started like a sexual conversation and they would be like, so are we going to bang or, and I'd be like, Oh God, no, that's just a thing I do for money. Yeah, so, you know, speaking of which he's not going to say anything. So I'll apologize on Greg's behalf for be- you are being super polite by now by not naming him. But I think it's important <laughs> to actually say that it was Greg, yeah, so Greg on the record. So just to be clear, um, Greg was gross. And so I couldn't write erotic anymore. He's yeah. just such a creep about yeah. it. <laughs> no, I would have couples, like couples come up and be like, oh, we use your erotica as a marital aid. And I'd be like, ew, <laughs> that's neat. Good. Didn't I'm you have so a- glad. Like it's flattering, but also too personal. there you have it. That was part one of my conversation with Emma Arnold. Now, if you want to use some of Emma's erotica as a sexual aid in your relationship, well, you're most likely out of luck because, as she said, it's no longer available and she doesn't write erotica anymore. Um, unless, you know, unless you get a hold of, of my Kindle, in which case you could probably read all of Emma's erotica. But, I, but you know, that's, that's likely not going to happen. So, so as far as you're concerned, it's just not available. However, you can read a whole bunch of Emma's amazing writing on her website, which you can find at emmaarnoldcomedy.com. Emma, if I, if I haven't already mentioned it, and if I, by the way, if I haven't already mentioned this, then shame on me. But if I haven't already mentioned it, Emma, aside from being a beekeeper and aside from being a, a wonderful stand-up comedian, Emma is a profoundly gifted writer. And I can say for myself, I've lost more than a few hours reading her endlessly entertaining articles. And I suggest you do the same thing. Now, my guess is that at least a few of you are listening to to this podcast for the very first time because you are fans of Emma Arnold. In fact, it's very likely you have no idea who I am, and you had no idea that this podcast even existed in the world until you found found out Emma Arnold was going to be on it, so you came to check it out. Now, my hope is that you enjoy the experience and that you're going to stick around. Uh, and my hope beyond that is that you'll go backwards and listen to some of the previous episodes of the podcast, which I hope you will also enjoy as much as you enjoyed episode 73, because I have no doubt you enjoyed episode n- number 73, because that's just how wonderful Emma Arnold is. Now, if that's the case, uh, you can you know you should know that the show is available on iTunes, so you should go if you're not already, you should go subscribe to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour on iTunes. Because uh, for, for, if for no other reason than because it's free. And there's, there's really, what is better than something free in this world? I don't know that there's anything better than that. Or just think of the thing that you love most in the world and then attach free to the beginning of it. And it's always that much better. So the podcast is free. Subscribe on iTunes. Uh, and while you're there, please leave a review. So if you like the show, leave a review. Uh, it's extremely helpful. And not only does it help uh, raise the self-esteem of everybody involved with the show, assuming you had something nice to say, 
but it also uh, it somehow or another goes into the iTunes algorithm, which I know nothing about. But if you leave a review, I do know that uh, it raises the profile of the podcast and makes it easier for people to find out that it exists, which is something that, you know, uh, as a new listener of the show, hopefully you want that as much as I do. If you're not an iTunes listener, you can also catch the show on Stitcher Radio, which you'll find at stitcher.com. Same deal as iTunes. It's free. Um, you can also uh, essentially subscribe on Stitcher. Well, basically, you just sign up for a profile. Then you can bookmark it or favorite it, something like that. But you don't even have to do that. You can just go to stitcher.com and search you know, search my name, and the show will come up. And then, and then there you go. Now, that's it for this week's episode. But... That's not it for M. Arnold, because like I said, this is part one of my conversation. So that means next week you've got to come back and you're going to get part two of my conversation with Emma Arnold. And if you liked part one of the conversation, I promise you, you're going to love part two of the conversation because things only get more interesting, way more interesting. How interesting, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. In part two of my conversation with Emma Arnold, uh, my mom, who uh, she she she'll be there for part two, if obviously uh, you you get to hear my mom uh, pipe in a little bit and and tell Emma how much she enjoyed her erotica writing. So they have a, they have a nice moment about that. Um, what else? Uh, Emma, of course, is a stand-up comedian. So in part two of our conversation. Uh, we talk a lot more about Emma's stand-up comedy and about stand-up comedy in general. And specifically, we spend some time talking about uh, some of the some of the challenges, but also some of the some of the joys of being uh, a female stand-up comedian. But anyway, that's all you're going to get from me about part two uh, on this episode, because you know, if, if you if you want to get the goods. You're just going to have to come back next week for part two of my conversation with Emma Arnold. All right? All right. Uh, I want to thank all of you for joining me again this week on the Marginless Trap Show Podcast Hour. Or if you're joining me for the first time, I want to thank all of you, my first-time listeners, for joining me this week on the on the podcast. Uh, I sincerely hope you enjoyed it, and I, and I very much hope that you come back next week uh, for part two of my conversation with Emma Arnold. I promise you, you're going to enjoy it. So until next time, I will see you on the other side. 